You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangelos, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a Certified Medical Director in Long-Term Care. Are patients in long-term care at high risk for developing venous thromboembolic disease? And when should physicians initiate prophylactic care? Joining us to discuss screening and prophylaxis for venous thromboembolism is Dr. Lori Jacobs, Professor of Clinical Medicine and Vice Chair of Clinical and Educational Programs in the Department of Medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Montefiore Medical Center. Dr. Jacobs is also director of the Resnick Gerontology Center at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. Lori, welcome to our program. Thanks very much. So tell us, how common is venous thromboembolism, VTE, in long-term care? Well, I think it's most common in the patients who are returning to long-term care after a hospital admission or are admitted to long-term care or subacute care for the first time after a hospital admission particularly in the first month following uh, hospital admission. Most patients develop thrombi actually during the hospitalization, but it often doesn't become clinically evident until after discharge, often in that first month's period of time. So nursing homes, which now have way more admissions and discharges than previously, really ought to be on the alert with these hospital patients. Yes. So do facilities implement screening protocols or do you recommend them? Well, I think that they've been mandated in the acute care setting, and I think that it's probably a good idea for patients in the subacute care setting. In the long-term care setting, I think upon admission, there should be some consideration to whether the patient should receive short-term prophylaxis. So the patients that are at highest risk are patients who are entering long-term care or subacute care for rehabilitation following orthopedic surgery, particularly hip replacement or hip fracture surgery, and secondly, patients who have undergone a knee replacement. Those two groups of orthopedic patients are at highest risk, although patients who have had general surgery, major cancer surgery, gynecologic surgery, or urologic surgery for cancer are also at particularly high risk. There are two other groups that we should consider as well, Patients entering long-term care who have had a recent stroke, particularly with a hemiparesis, have significant risk in the early period, particularly a lower extremity, although upper extremity hemiparesis also presents a risk for clotting. And patients with uh, medical illness, particularly sepsis or an ongoing infectious disease or have a low-flow state from congestive heart failure, or perhaps cirrhosis or nephrosis may be at risk as well. You know, Lori, every patient that comes out of the hospital from an orthopedic service seems to be on some kind of prophylaxis, but they're certainly not standardized. Would you send the facility medical director or the attending staff to any location to kind of get an idea of what a standard of care might be? Well, the standard of care is generally those recommendations by the American College of Chest Physicians which recommends prophylaxis for venous thromboembolism for 28 days following hip fracture surgery or hip replacement surgery. The recommendation for knee replacement patients is a little softer. Many of us think that they should also 
receive prophylaxis, particularly those who are coming to long-term care, since that group usually needs more intensive rehabilitation and hasn't been able to fulfill the exercises in the hospital in order to go home with rehab so that they're a little less mobile and may be required. For patients with general surgery and gynecologic cancer patients, we also generally recommend continued prophylaxis for about a month, about 28 days. The recommendations regarding medical patients are not as clear. There are two studies that looked at extended prophylaxis and did show a reduction in both the absolute and the relative risk for thrombosis, but the absolute risk is much lower in that group. And lastly, the group of stroke patients, I think, has to be individualized depending on their impairment. The stroke patients are really tough to figure out what to do with it. You're absolutely right. There are a number of impediments to keep people on anticoagulation long enough at the appropriate doses. What are some of the barriers that you've seen that you've had to overcome to keep people on treatment for the appropriate length of time? Well, for prophylaxis, first of all, I think that the recommendations, if they're going to be stringent, would be to treat people for up to 28 days. I think beyond that, there's not strong data to support ongoing thromboprophylaxis. So it's basically trying to maintain somebody for about a month in long-term care. And the kinds of impediments that exist are first in the choice of the agent. Patients may be switched to warfarin, which is a vitamin K antagonist, because it may present on face value a lower cost to the facility in terms of medication acquisition. The cost of laboratory testing, however, should be added into that. And one of the hardest issues with warfarin, obviously, is regulating the INR. And often the patient comes from the hospital, and when they enter long-term care, you don't know when uh, the medication was initiated, what the doses were prior, so you often don't know exactly where you are in terms of maintaining therapeutic anticoagulation within the first week, week and a half of their stay, and that can be very difficult, necessitating close monitoring. The other choice is either unfractionated heparin, which can be given BID or TID, is familiar to all of us, but one of the issues there is that the incidence of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia has been increasing, and part of that is that a lot of patients in long-term care are frequently admitted to the hospital, receive prophylaxis in the hospital, and perhaps continued in long-term care and may have developed antibodies to it and develop HIT. So there is some concern about use of unfractionated heparin. Low molecular weight heparins have a lower rate of HIT, although are not completely free of this problem, but are much more expensive often for the long-term care pharmacy budget. And that may present an issue depending on the insurance system, whether they're in Part D Medicare or so on. So those are both monitoring of therapy, adverse effects, and cost of therapy are three significant impediments to providing thromboprophylaxis in long-term care. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from Reach MD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Tangelos, and joining me to discuss screening and prophylaxis for venous thromboembolism is Dr. Lori Jacobs. Professor of Clinical Medicine and Vice Chair of Clinical and Educational Programs in the Department of Medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Montefiore Medical Center. Dr. Jacobs is also Director of the Resnick Gerontology Center at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. 
Laurie, at your facility, any standards that you're able to bring to bear? You've got lots of different admitting services and physicians and attendings. Do you try to exert an influence so that only one regimen is used? Well, in the hospital setting, we had a great debate about this, and we instituted a standard set of prophylaxis orders. The debate surrounded whether we should try to risk stratify patients and lead the clinician to decide whether they should provide prophylaxis or not, and then try to influence the choice of method once they have chosen to do prophylaxis. And we opted to leave it in the clinician's hands so that in the hospital setting, we ask the primary physician caring for all patients on the surgical and medical services whether prophylaxis should be considered in their patient, and then they are given a list including mechanical methods and pharmacological methods for prophylaxis. Upon discharge to long-term care, it's really left in the hands of the physicians managing the transition. So the discharging physician will indicate their orders, but upon admission to long-term care, I think it's incumbent upon that physician to decide if thromboprophylaxis is appropriate and then which agent or method is appropriate for that patient. And it's really tough on the attending physician in long-term care to alter a treatment regimen, especially an anticoagulation regimen that's been started in the hospital. Well, often in the hospital, we're providing, remember, it's just prophylaxis. This is not anticoagulation for other indications. So we're often using low molecular weight heparin because it's easier for the nurses to administer in the hospital. It has a lower incidence of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Due to its predictable pharmacokinetics, it's easier for us to use. But in the long-term care setting, that may present an expensive therapy. And many circumstances, they elect to switch to warfarin for the month if they're going to be prophylaxing for a month. And both are adequate methods. So it depends on monitoring on your individual patient, perhaps on potential for drug interactions, on nursing care, and on cost considerations. We always uh, oftentimes say that the biggest trouble with warfarin is getting it started. It's that early monitoring and early adjustment. And if you've only got the patient for a month, 28 days, it's a hard row to get them settled in with just that little amount of time. I agree. I don't think in a practical sense that it's ideal. And However, it is often a less expensive alternative. One of the issues that I've seen with warfarin use in long-term care is that a dose is not settled upon or the dose is alternated between one day and the next or every third day, and they've not really achieved a steady state. What I usually recommend is that if you're going to switch to warfarin therapy, and I'm not saying that that's the ideal method, but if one is going to switch, that you often add up the dose that has been given over a week's period of time, and if you're close to target, alter the week's total dose by about 5 to 10%. If you're very far off target, alter it by about 20%. Figure out what that dose would be, divide it by 7, and try to give a consistent dose every day so that when you test it again, you know where you're at. If you're alternating a dose every second or third day, you often are not certain when you get your INR where you're at with that patient. So it's better to have the same dose every day, better to give it at the same time every day. And I often, as I said, divide it over a week's time and try to figure out what the correct dose might be for that patient. You know, I can exert very little influence at my facility, but one of the things that we do mandate with regards to warfarin 
is that only one tablet size is available through the pharmacy to the facility. Thus, we've only got one integer to work with. Oh, that's very difficult. It's much more difficult to provide thromboprophylaxis with warfarin for these very reasons. In addition, drug interactions, dosing, monitoring. Unfractionated heparin or uh, low molecular weight heparin is more predictable. And at the thromboprophylaxis dose, the incidence of bleeding is less. At the full anticoagulant doses, of course, the chance of bleeding is very similar to that with warfarin. We do not use low-dose warfarin for thromboprophylaxis. We use it in therapeutic range, which would be an INR of, of 2 to 3. So there can be bleeding associated. One of the complications of providing thromboprophylaxis for surgical patients is that there is about a 5 to 7% increase in wound hematomas, for example, a patient with a uh, hip replacement. So that can, at times, present an impediment to therapy. How about a prognostic look at what may come next? We've all been waiting for direct thrombin inhibitors, I think, for at least a decade. What's on the horizon? Well, there are a whole bunch of new agents that are in drug development and several that are approaching or at the FDA at the current time. There are both 10A inhibitors and direct thrombin inhibitors that are oral agents, many of which have been studied for thromboprophylaxis in patients with atrial fibrillation for prevention of stroke, and some of which have been studied for DVT prophylaxis. Factor 10A inhibitors include apixaban and rivaroxaban. Factor 2 inhibitors are also in drug development. And in addition, we have a few new parenteral agents that may come along as well. Idraparinux, which is an injectable drug, uh, has a very long half-life and potentially could be injected once a week and as also a factor 10A inhibitor. And although it's parenteral, the infrequent administration may also provide an advantage to patients in long-term care. So I think that there's a lot of potential. None of the drugs are approved yet, and I think we'll have to wait and see how the FDA evaluates them when they'll be released. I suspect that they'll be quite expensive, unfortunately, upon release, and that may be an impediment again for their use in long-term care. We'll have to see. Well, I would like to thank my guest from Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Dr. Lori Jacobs. Lori, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. Oh, it was my pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for inviting me. You have been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA, For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.